Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 41. You know, I really can't believe that I've done that many episodes. I had no idea in the beginning how long this podcast would last and actually I thought I would run out of stories to have to tell. But the stories, I tell you, I have so many stories that I just don't have enough time to tell them all. But it seems that you're all enjoying it so there's no reason for me to stop. I hope you're all doing okay in the midst of this virus pandemic. It's really been interesting seeing all the ways that people are keeping occupied while in isolation. And a positive byproduct is that families are actually spending quality time together. As a teacher, we know that some of our kids see their teachers more than they see their parents. As well as going to school, they go to before school care and also after school care, with some of them staying there until it closes at 6pm. These days, many families have both parents working, but I think it's now given some people an opportunity to just stop and have a well-earned rest and reconnect with each other. I've loved seeing people setting up tents in their backyards because they can't go camping. And I also went through a McDonald's drive through for a coffee, and I see now that they are selling milk and bread. Can you believe it? And not only that, but I went through another coffee drive through and they were selling, wait for it, toilet rolls. Yes, toilet rolls. I've also seen so many people walking their dogs, so the dogs are loving this coronavirus. It's also much easier to drive around the roads where I live. Um, they're just not so clogged anymore. But of course, I would prefer to have clogged roads if it meant that people wouldn't get sick, lose their jobs, or sadly die. Now, I would also like to tell you that the first four episodes of the podcast have been re-recorded with extra content added. Episodes one and two were re-released as special episodes one and two, but now I have replaced those first two episodes with the new versions. I have also redone episodes three and four, but I won't be releasing these as separate episodes. I know that sometimes new listeners start with the most recent episodes of a podcast, which is what I usually do. So if you haven't listened to these early episodes, they are now much better. The editing and audio production and storytelling is better. So have a listen to those first four episodes if you haven't already done so. All right, let's say hello to some of the members of our Facebook group. We have a doctor in our Facebook group. Dr. Hadil Ashore, hello, Natalie Jane Taylor, Kelly Mellors, and Lois Mapes Davis. And as I usually do, I've got a podcast review to share with you. It says, This one is different. There are more true crime podcasts than you can shake a stick at, but this one is the meter stick to measure them by. I thought the worst thing you can do in class was to talk too much and get sent out to bang erasers. This podcast about the things that happen in schools is like no other. Anna is fantastic. Her empathy for the victims and her well-researched topics 
separate this from other true crime podcasts. What a delight and educational. And this review was actually written by someone that I know, Miss Bonnie Lee. Hello, Miss Bonnie Lee, if you're listening. Bonnie is actually a member of our Facebook group, but she also has her own true crime podcast called Writing About Crime. So if you're looking for another true crime podcast, then check out her podcast, Writing About Crime. Thank you so much, Bonnie, for your lovely review. Now, today's country of focus is South Korea, and the information that I'm about to provide is X-rated, so for adults only. So I'm saying this just in case you're isolating at home and listening with kids in the room. I've always thought of South Korea as a fascinating country, but I was surprised at these facts that I discovered. There is a fishing village in South Korea where you will find a park called the Heisendang Park, but it's better known by its other name, which is Penis Park. Yes, that's what I said. You can see about 50 phallic sculptures taking on various forms such as park benches or drums. There is a local legend that a drowned virgin was affecting the village's fish catch. A fisherman discovered that he could appease her by facing the ocean and answering the call of nature. So the villagers decided to put up phalluses to placate her. There are also other penis structures representing the 12 animals of the Chinese zodiac and there's also a red phallic lighthouse. There are penis stools for you to sit on. You can visit this park with a small fee. Now I'll spell the name for you in case you'd like to google it or if you're even wanting to visit it. It's the Haisendang, H-A-E. S-I-N-D-A-N-G. And of course, you'll only be looking to appreciate the art. Right, girls? Now, let me take you to another location in South Korea called Jeju Island. On the island is an outdoor sculpture park called Jeju Loveland. The park's theme is what else but sex. It runs sex education films and has 140 sculptures of humans in various sexual positions. It also has large phallic statues, stone labia, and hands-on exhibits such as a masturbation cycle. The mind boggles about what that is. It is promoted as a place where love-orientated art and eroticism meet. During the 1970s, the island was a popular place for honeymooners. As many couples had arranged marriages, it became a place for them to go for sex education. And if you'd like to look at this place, it's called Jeju, pronounced J-E-J-U. And finally, we can now go back to a G rating with this last fact. When Koreans are born, they're automatically one year old. There are different schools of thought as to why this is. One explanation is that people think it's because the baby is in the mother's womb for nine months, which is about a year. Therefore, the baby is one year old when born. All right, and here is a preview of the Bad Apple story today. It's called Lights Out. 
The schoolgirls were in their dormitory when the lights went out. What happened next? For this story, we go back 30 years to Kenya in 1991 to a secondary school called St. Casito. It was a co-educational Catholic boarding school. There were 270 female students and 300 male students. A group of boys from the school were on a bus on their way to a sports competition against other schools. The boys had been training hard and were looking forward to competing, but they were not prepared for what happened when they arrived. Their school had not paid the participation fee to take part in the competition and therefore they were not able to compete. The boys were shocked and upset. All they could do is just watch the competition. When the sports day was finished, they were supposed to be picked up by the school bus and returned to school. However, the bus never came and they were forced to walk back to school, arriving after dark. The boys were furious that the school principal had not paid the fees and decided to hold a strike. They approached the girls, asking them to take part in the strike with them. However, the girls refused. At around 8pm that night, the girls were in their classrooms when suddenly the power went out. The girls went back to their dormitories, as was the procedure when there was a power failure. Now this part to me seemed unusual that they were still having classes at night. At around 10pm, the girls suddenly heard what sounded like rocks hitting the walls of their dormitories. They became very scared and the head girl instructed them to go and hide in the largest dormitory in the school, which had steel doors and bars on the windows. The 270 girls crammed themselves into the dormitory that usually only housed about 70. A teacher had discovered that some of the boys had been up to mischief, which was not unusual. The boys were instructed to return to their dorms and the girls decided to stay in the dorm, which was more secure than the other dorms. At 1am in the morning, the dormitory was again bombarded with rocks. This time, the boys forced entry into the dormitory. The extra security was no match for the boys. Carrying torches and some covered in sheets, they began attacking the girls. In the chaos that ensued, the girls were beaten, trampled on, suffocated, and very disturbingly, some were even raped. So, so tragically, 19 girls lost their lives, 71 were raped, and many more were injured. The investigation uncovered that the boys were angry that the girls refused to join the strike. They also believed that the girls were favoured by the principal and teachers and that some of them were having sexual relations with school officials. The boys had cut power to the whole school and then started their deadly rampage. There were roughly 300 boys at the school, but due to the total darkness, it was impossible to determine how many boys had been involved. It appears that due to the large numbers, the teachers were unable to prevent the attack and they themselves felt under threat. Two night watchmen had approached them with bows and arrows, but were pelted with rocks, so had to retreat. 
they ran to a mission which was next door to the school, run by the Reverend Alexander Karanja. He refused to go over there, saying, I will not enter there when the boys are unruly. They are not easy to face. Meanwhile, two girls managed to escape and ran to the hospital, which was only about 500 yards away from the school. The nurse on duty reported the following. They were in a state of shock when they arrived. They said there was a riot at the school and the boys were beating them. They were complaining of pains and said that they had been raped. However, despite reporting being raped, the girls did not receive pelvic examinations or have samples taken for the presence of semen. The hospital administrators said, we don't do that unless the police tell us to. Two teachers managed to flee to a police station 15 minutes away and reported what was happening. After two hours, the police still had not arrived and it was discovered later that their excuse had been, and wait for it, that they had no petrol in their vehicles. Are you kidding? The police finally arrived at the scene at 3am in the morning, can you believe it? But by that time, everything was quiet. The injured girls were already at the hospital. The boys had fled, some ran home, while others hid in the bushes until morning. Some of the 19 girls who died were found in one corner of the dormitory. The surviving girls recounted the harrowing ordeal with one saying, We were attacked as if by a pack of hungry hyenas. The boys started grabbing girls and dragging them outside to be raped. So the girls retreated into the corner, huddling together and clutching onto one another so they wouldn't be dragged outside, and this is where some perished. Others were trampled to death as they tried to flee. There were double bunk beds in the dormitory, and some girls hid underneath the bottom bunk. But in the chaos, the boys jumped up onto the beds, attacking the girls, causing the beds to collapse, and some were injured and even suffocated to death. All 270 girls were in that dormitory, and there were 300 boys in the school. It is not known how many boys actually were involved, but you can imagine there were a considerable number of students in that building. It must have been absolutely harrowing. There was just nowhere to escape. A doctor who arrived on the scene said, I have never seen anything like it. It was like civil war. There were bodies everywhere. They had been dead about three hours. Now, this part doesn't make sense to me. Why did it take three hours before they were actually found? Why didn't anybody go into the building? The boys had apparently run off and the girls were in hospital. Didn't anyone think to go inside the building? Or did they think that all the girls got out? Those incompetent police leaving them there for so long. How different the whole tragedy could have turned out if the police had responded in a timely manner. Perhaps some of them could have been saved if someone went into the building earlier. And what about all the teachers and the staff? Where were they? Did they flee as well in fear of their safety? The surviving girls reported that some of the girls had been taken into the tall grass outside the dormitories to be raped. And even more shockingly, they said rape had been a common occurrence at the school. Boys would grab girls from the dormitories and take them out into the long grass where the assault could not be seen.
and the girls never reported the abuse. Now I'm going to read some statements given after the tragedy by the principal and the deputy principal of the school. Here is what the deputy principal said. The boys never meant any harm against the girls. They just wanted to rape. What an absolutely alarming statement. But what makes it worse is that the deputy principal was a woman. This is just so deplorable. And here is what the principal said. In the past, the boys would scare the girls out of the dormitories. And in the process, they would get hold of them and drag them to the bush where they would do their thing. And the matter would end there, with the students going back to their respective dormitories. I, (laughs) this just absolutely floors me. So, Mr. Principal, you knew about this. And what did you do? Obviously, absolutely nothing. His attitude was like there was absolutely nothing wrong with it. It was just what happened. Oh, I feel so sorry for these poor girls. These statements from school officials clearly shows societal attitudes in Kenya towards women and the rape and deaths of the girl is a metaphor for what goes on in Kenyan society. Here is one quote that I found which sums it all up. This tragedy has underscored the male chauvinism that dominates Kenyan social life. We treat women and girls as second-class beings, good only for sexual gratification or burdensome chores. We bring up our boys to have little or no respect for girls. Sadly, the ill-treatment of girls in schools is a common occurrence. Girls are subjected to bullying, threats, violence, sexual harassment, and, as this incident showed, rape and even death. And all of this not just at the hands of male students, but also teachers and school staff. From a young age, girls are taught to be subservient to males and that saying no is not an option. They keep their silence, as they know the behaviour of boys at school is condoned by the adults and the boys know that they will get away with it. Most of the teachers are men, so this is another barrier to reporting abuse. And they also don't say anything to their parents, as they know they won't get any support, particularly if they are being ill-treated by teachers. Teachers are seen as authority figures, and girls know their parents won't believe them or would even condone the teacher's actions because they probably did something to deserve the treatment. In 2001, the Kenyan government banned corporal punishment in schools and the introduction of the Children's Act entitled children to be safe from violence and abuse. But as we have seen, girls continue to be exposed to this type of ill treatment. Here is an account from a woman about what her school days were like. As a student in a mixed primary school in Kenya, I have encountered the culture of silence on matters pertaining to sexual harassment. At the age of 11, I was naive enough to report to a female teacher that I had received a note with sexually obscene language from a male classmate, only to be punished by having to clean the boys' toilets, so that other girls would know that sexual harassment was a girl's fault. Rather than being encouraged and equipped to know and respond to sexual harassment, we girls learnt to keep quiet about our male classmates' sexual advances. So, 
What happened to the boys who raped and murdered these girls? 39 boys were arrested, with nine being prosecuted and jailed, with varying sentences of two, three or four years. People were outraged at the light sentences, which was defended because the rape and murder could not be fully proven. The country was furious about what the boys had done and for their own safety, the boys were rotated around to all the prisons in Kenya. Their parents were not even allowed to see them. People also reported that immediately after the incident, some boys mysteriously disappeared, with some believing the boys were murdered for their actions. Others reported that some boys who served their sentences returned to their neighbourhood but appeared to have serious mental problems. As I try to do with all the stories I present, I try to find the stories of the victims. But given the stay silent culture that girls are brought up in, it's not surprising that I wasn't able to find any of the girls' stories. However, I was able to find two of the boys involved and here are their stories. Many years after the tragedy, a journalist managed to track down one of the boys who was then working as a carpenter. His name was Mr. Sampson Kalawa. He didn't want to talk to the journalist and asked that his photo not be taken. But after some prodding, the man revealed that he wanted to put the incident behind him. By that time, he was a father and a husband and a born-again Christian. He swore on God's name that he was innocent. He claimed that he was a dedicated student who had dreams of becoming a doctor. On the night of the incident, he was studying for his exams when the lights went out. Here is his account. When the noises began, me and 14 other boys left the school and went to the neighbouring villages. We did not want police to arrest us because we knew in a situation like that, many things could go wrong. He said he spent the night studying with friends and that it was only when he returned to school the following morning that he found out what had happened. He was interviewed by the police, as were all the boys. The girls had been instructed by the police to name the boys who participated in the attack and if a boy's name came up by more than two girls, then he automatically became a suspect. And this is what happened to him. He explained it as follows. You could be enemies with a girl because of trivial issues. Maybe you refused a relationship with her. So she implicates you. That's how it was with me. I think those who named me had something against me. The other 13 boys who left the school with him were not named, and yet they didn't state that he was with them and therefore innocent. And this is how he explained it. You know, many people were afraid of getting involved. Parents warned their children against pleading on behalf of others. It was while he was in jail that he learnt that only two of the boys were actually guilty. When asked how he knew this, he responded by saying, There was no time to go over what had happened, but once in a while during conversation, you could tell who was innocent and who was not. Well, this just sounds a bit vague to me. He seems to be just going on a hunch about who was innocent or guilty. He was asked if he thought the boys set out deliberately to rape and kill the girls, to which he replied, perhaps if it was rape, then rape was normal. 
but I really do not think that they intended to kill anyone. I mean, how could they? They were mere boys. Really, what a thing to say. Those mere boys killed 19 girls. Due to his time in prison, he wasn't able to finish his secondary education. However, he had learnt carpentry in prison, which is now his trade. He says he doesn't have any ill feelings towards the girls who named him. So, what do you think? Do you believe his version of the story? It's hard to say. It was totally dark, and the girls were having flashlights shone into their faces. So, it's really just his word, isn't it? Another one of the boys, Mr. Stephen Irandu, went on to become a lecturer in telecommunication technology. Here is his story. He had been class monitor when the lights went out, and so he instructed the girls and the boys to return to their dormitories. He said, Stones were being thrown onto our roofs, forcing us to come out and check. We sought help from the watchmen, who were also not sure who was attacking the boys. So this is interesting. He says the boys were also getting attacked. But as far as I had always read, it was just the girls who had been attacked. He recalled that earlier that day, some of the boys had a quarrel with neighbouring villagers and that perhaps the villagers came back to get revenge. He and a group of boys feared there would be trouble and left, but didn't go to the police station as they feared that they would be arrested. So they spent the night at a neighbouring village. The boys said they heard the screams but were afraid to go back in case they got implicated. At about 6am the next morning, they snuck back to school, seeing the policemen everywhere, and were given the shocking news of what had happened. The school was immediately closed down and the boys were transferred to another high school. They were not viewed very well by the students in their new school and were called rapists and murderers. The man had this advice for students contemplating going on strike. When you go on strike, you are a loser. It's just not worth it. As already mentioned, the school was closed down and the girls were also transferred to other high schools. About a year later, the school reopened as a boys-only school and was renamed St. Cyprian. There was much backlash in the country against co-educational schools and after the incident, no new co-educational schools were opened. Now, you may also be wondering what happened to the principal and the teachers. Well, it looks like nothing, as I failed to find any mention about them. I did read, though, that the night watchmen were questioned but released due to lack of evidence. And I also covered another horrific story from Kenya, which also took place in a boarding school. It's episode 32, called Smoking Hot, which you may like to listen to if you haven't already listened to it. It's stories like these that make me so thankful that I live in a country like Australia. Although our schools are not perfect, our female students are so, so fortunate not to have to endure what the girls in other countries are subjected to. This was a very sad story to have to tell, but nothing will change by brushing it under the carpet. In the 30 years since the tragedy, one would hope that schools have improved in that time. This story also made me think about the pros and cons of co-educational schools. I went to an all-girls Catholic high school until year 11 and then went to a boys' school for year 12 and I really found out how distracting having boys around was. 
After being around girls for four years, we were like kids in a candy shop. But I think it's like when you go on a diet and deprive yourself of your favourite foods, you will eventually give in and binge. On the one hand, girls and boys need to learn how to get on with the opposite sex. But on the other hand, boys are generally more outspoken in the classroom and demand more attention. And I really have to be conscious of this in my own classroom. I did some reading on this subject and it was suggested that girls at single sex schools are more confident in subjects like maths and physics and they feel less constrained in participating in classroom discussions. For boys, developing healthy relationships and respecting girls is less likely to occur in boys' schools. And of course, this is just a generalisation. In hindsight, I was glad my parents made me go to a girls' school because five years with boys would have been too distracting. And you know, we all survived being in a girls' school. I mean, it's not like after school we went boy crazy. Well, maybe we did just a little bit. Now, just before we finish, here is a podcast recommendation. It's called Malice and is hosted by Ariel. Ariel is a sociologist, educator, wife, mum, true crime junkie, and now podcaster. She delves into the psychology, sociology, environments, family dysfunction, neurobiology, and extenuating circumstances that create violent offenders. It has a very interesting and different format to other true crime podcasts. So take a listen. Hi everyone, this is Ariel Cooksey from the podcast Malice. Sometimes we think about predators as monsters, as otherworldly, as if no human being could perpetrate the acts that they commit. But when we really think about it, only human beings execute these heinous acts. And if you're like me, you want to know why. So if you want to take this journey with me and to explore the ins and outs, the psychology, the sociology, the neurology, the environment, the family, all of the dysfunction and pathology that leads to violent offenders, please join us at Malice. You can find it on all major podcasting sites. Thanks so much. Bye. And now here is a preview of the next episode. It's called The Bunker. The man built an underground bunker. Why? So to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. Teachers are the only professionals who have to respond to bells every 45 minutes and come out fighting. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.